Welcome to the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Clinton. Loop Ventures is a venture capital fund focused on investing in frontier technologies, including those that use brain-related sciences to deliver next-generation experiences, whether that's brain-computer interface, better mental or physical performance, new healthcare solutions, or even things like neural lace. We noticed there wasn't a podcast that talked specifically about brain tech, so we decided to start our own. Today, we have our very first guest, Dr. Michael Merzenich of UCSF. Dr. Merzenich is a multi-award-winning neuroscientist and has spent much of his career studying brain plasticity, the ability of the brain to change itself and adapt. He also worked on the first cochlear implant and co-founded a company that offers a product called Brain HQ, which improves cognitive function. In our discussion, we talk about why plasticity is important and how plasticity might impact brain-computer interface in the future. And now, Dr. Michael Merzenich. All right, Dr. Merzenich, thanks for joining the show. It's great to have you on. It's very nice to be with you guys. Can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in neuroscience and maybe what sparked your interest in the field? Well, I was originally interested in the great issues of philosophy, you could say, and psychology, why we are what we are, why we do what we do, the nature of our, our humanity, how we generate the self within us. So I really thought of myself initially, if someone asked me what I did, I'd call myself an applied philosopher. But that really meant I wanted to understand the brain from the point of view of understanding the highest functions of the brain and the basis of our humanity and, and really the basis of our, our behaviors. Got it. And can you give us a sense for why you think plasticity is such an important topic for the brain? Well, not too many years ago, the predominant religion was that the brain could change itself, rewire itself in a very young brain. And then the brain basically matured, it grew up, it became hardwired, like a computer sitting on your desk. And you had to account for the evolution of behavior with a machine that was fixed in its connectivity and fixed in its functional elements, which was hard for the theorists to do. But there was an undercurrent across neuroscience all along that argued that the brain, in fact, was capable of changing at any age, remodeling itself, revising its connectivity, at least on a local scale. And basically, we contributed to the correction of the notion that plasticity was limited to the youthful brain and demonstrated that every time you acquire a new ability, every time you improve at any ability, basically, you're revising the machinery of the brain. You're basically creating the control processor that accounts for that improvement or accounts for that new ability. And we demonstrated, uh, it has been demonstrated beyond all question, that this is a lifelong resource. It's with you. It's very fundamental in the processes of the brain. It's the brain's big trick, really. It's continually remodeling itself. So you can think of yourself as a work in progress. It created you. It created the operational person that you are through quadrillions of moments of change. It continues to change you. You have the capacity to be better, stronger, certainly different next month as opposed to this month, next week as opposed to this week. It's, it's an incredible personal resource. And it is, in a sense, your true creator. As we age, I know we still have the ability to learn new things, but does the plasticity of our brain actually change as we age? Or is it just used less? It does change. It goes through a radical change when you are a baby. Because plasticity in the infant brain is basically unregulated. And the machinery of the brain has to mature so that the brain can control its own change. 
So part of the initial changes that are occurring in the brain is the brain evolves machinery and it involves capacity to evaluate the effectiveness of what it's controlling. And then it only permits change, you could say, beyond that point when it judges the change to be good for it. So in a sense, people imagine that second phase of the evolution of behavior as being not being accounted for by a physical or functional change in the brain, but it is. And in fact, now the change, once this machinery is matured, and this occurs in, in very early childhood, now the change is all under the brain's own control. So in a sense, you're not just a self-creation. In a general sense, your brain has actually evolved to continually manipulate you, continually manipulate itself in ways that controls its own self-evolution. I regard this as being important in our understanding of ourselves as the theory of evolution. In a sense, it's personal evolution. It's all about the genesis of ourself, the creature that we are, the person that we are within our lifetime by changes that occur within us, within our skulls, within our lifetime. What's more important than that? Not that much. You started a company called Brain HQ, which they provide a software tool that helps improve plasticity. So can you tell us a little bit about the science that you try to apply through those tools? Well, once we understood that the brain is continually changing itself, there are two big implications of that. And one is, is that the brain in the course or progression of pathology, as the pathology emerges, is also plastically changing itself. And we quite quickly begin to create models of brains and many other sciences have contributed to this. So we understand that, for example, in general, psychiatric illness is a consequence of progressive, you could call it negative or destructive change. And one thing we know about plasticity in a brain is that it's all reversible. We also know that when you think about the long progressive decline that occurs, for example, in the universal human disease, that's called aging. We all, in a sense, go to hell neurologically slowly as we get older but it's all reversible. Reverse, everything that changes across the course of aging is by its nature reversible. So basically, in order to apply this medically, we have to understand in a sense how to attack these conditions. So what are the distortions that apply, for example, to the patient with depression or the individual that's been knocked on the head or the individual that suffered a stroke or the individual that's been infected by HIV AIDS or poisoned by a drug? You know, how can we organize a plan of action, a strategy to drive the brain back in a corrective direction to renormalize it? Now, I was saying most of these conditions, the only true normalization that, that can occur in the brain has to occur through the brain changing itself. And of course, that true normalization, there's a word for it. The word is cure. And nothing else, no other strategy, no chemical distortion, no nothing can actually renormalize the brain once it's in a distorted state like this. So, you know, in order to implement this, we not only have to understand at first level what to do, we need to understand how to deliver it. How can we make it acceptably efficient, positively received by the patient as a form of medicine and so forth. So there's a big job required to effectively translate this power and deliver the goods to people in need of help. But just about everyone among us can benefit by applying highly efficient strategies to change their brain for the better. And certainly that applies to almost everybody with a clinical indication that we would identify as neurological or psychiatric. So do you think that these software tools could eventually evolve into something that could help treat psychiatric illness without the medicine that we use today? They are now. So we're seeing this occur. 
And we are very effectively driving changes in the brains of individuals that have psychiatric illnesses, you could say, that are as powerful or effective as pharmaceutical treatments, for sure. And these things are in an evolution. I mean, we understand as the science evolves how to drive more and more powerful, more and more reliable effects in patient populations. One way to think about it is that the distortions that occur in someone that suffers from a condition like major depressive disorder is actually quite complex. There are five or six major brain systems that have been driven into distortion. The drug, or for that matter, psychotherapy, addresses these problems in a relatively simplistic way. And actually, it leaves the patient, the treated patient, by its relatively simple distortion, redistortion, you could think of it, of course, more functional. But there are still many uncorrected aspects of the neurological distortions that gave rise to the condition or were expressed by the condition that are still in place. That's why recidivism rates are so high. That's why individuals on the drug are not quite the way they were, not quite the person they were before any of this happened to them. So, you know, a more complete strategy ultimately will be a strategy in which the patient effectively corrects themselves neurologically by changing their brain back in corrective directions. That's my belief. Now, it's also possible that ultimately the most effective therapies will use a pharmaceutical strategy to amplify or increase the rate of change that amplify its effects. That may also occur. So it's a little bit difficult to completely predict the clinical future. But what I do know beyond all question is that intensive brain training will be a part of it. It'll be a part of how we think about treating these conditions medically because by its nature, it can be more complete and it can be more effective in truly renormalizing the individual. And it really is the only way that that can be achieved. It's a powerful future to look forward to. We're excited for it at Loop Ventures. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was just earlier on in your career, we know that you were instrumental, really, in the development of the cochlear implant. And I'm just curious how you think about some of the recent discussion around brain implants and things like neural mesh and those devices, and maybe anything that you learned as you were working on the cochlear implant that might be relevant for you know this next generation of brain implantation. Well, one of the great lessons of the cochlear implant was that the contribution of the plasticity of the brain was in a sense more important for them operating with high effectiveness than the engineering. So think of what the cochlear implant what is. I mean, basically a relatively crude multi-channel stimulator introduced into the inner ear with the goal in the case of the device that we develop of simulating the normal patterns of input to represent oral speech. So we were trying to recover accurate reception of language by basically crudely stimulating, and because crude stimulation was all we could achieve on the engineering side. I liken it to playing Chopin with your fists in relation to the normal, elegant way that the inner ear represents complex sounds, flow of sound as in human speech, it's very, 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 very primitive. And it's not surprising, yet we had reasons to believe it could be effective because engineers had worked to try to reduce the information in oral speech and produce artificial devices in which speech could still be intelligible. So we had this dream that we could do just enough to make it intelligible. Well. What happened in the application of these devices was that initially patients said everything they heard sounded like garbage, it sounded like noise, meaningless, it sounded like an alien language or something that was quite discouraging. 
And while we were very busy trying to manipulate our machinery to, in a sense, modify that signal so that it was more understandable, intelligible, or learnable, the patient came in one day and said, I understand everything. Sounds just like it sounded before I lost my hearing. And that's not a miracle of engineering. That's a miracle of brain plasticity. Uh And not only did they reinterpret this information delivered in the brain in a very different way, they basically recreated a representation of speech and language, but ultimately they appropriately associated with all of the information they had acquired before they lost their hearing. That's really a miracle of brain plasticity. And you can imagine, we can only imagine, the massive connectional changes that have to occur in the brain in detail to accomplish that. So one of the things, people do not fully realize the power of the brain's own potential contribution to a therapeutic device like this. So the device can make it for the first level correction, but the brain will make a powerful contribution with a device of appropriate design. So this is one reason that I'm very hopeful that powerful things will come from neuroprosthetic devices of this class. I think commonly it will require some level of intensive training applied with the uses of devices to get the most out of them. But I believe, strongly believe, that we're just in, again, in the infancy of seeing the potential of developing and applying directly brain-engaging devices, both receiving and engaging with brains through pattern stimulation. And there are zillion uses for this. One of the things that's really facilitating this is the really powerful ways we have now of interpreting information from the surface of the brain or from deep structures with devices we know are now relatively safe to apply. So I'm excited about using that information to interpret what's happening in the brain and through a combination of using that information and learning, generate powerful control of actions in the body, for example, that have been lost or degraded or, or could be assisted or enabled or magnified or advantaged in some way that contributes powerfully to rehabilitation. I think we're going to see a whole host of things like this. That's a powerful lesson, I think, about just the ability of the brain to really adapt and work in unison with technology. And I think a lot of the solutions we see today are really focused so much on just the technology itself and not how the brain might sort of adjust to that technology. So it's helpful. We still have done a very poor job. In fact, even in cochlear implants, you know, I strongly encourage the manufacturers, including the ones that I'm closely associated with, to more intensively engage their patients in training and to build devices with training in mind. And they still are just beginning to think about how to accomplish that. You know, basically we had insights into how to accomplish that 25, 30 years ago. So there's a long way to go still in making these devices in their most powerful potential forms. So Dr. Merzenich, I'd like to move just to a quick rapid fire round, just three questions with short answers. And the first one is, what's your favorite book about neuroscience? You can say your own book if you'd like. Well, I'd like everybody to read my own book, (laughs) (laughs) which is called Softwired. And it's an introduction to the science, and it also provides insights into how to think about organizing your own life to the advantage of your brain, which is valuable for everybody to think about. Dale Bredesen is a scientist that just published a book in the last two or three weeks. I'm not sure of the title of it, but I read it in proofs. And it basically relates to his interpretation of what changes in the brain as it ages and approaches the catastrophic end stage of Alzheimer's disease. And for anybody that is thinking about these issues in their mind, it's a wonderful very original treatment of that complex question. And then a very easy book to read that's an introduction to brain plasticity 
is The Brain That Changes Itself, which is a wonderful book. And I'd strongly recommend that people look for that as an initial resource in getting into this subject. The Brain That Changes Itself is a wonderful book written by a Canadian neurologist that's very enlightened. Great. We'll add all three of those to the show notes. The next question is, if you could only do one thing every day to improve brain plasticity, what would it be? Well, think about action at speed. Uh, think about action that's progressively refined. If you can drive your performance at speed in a refined way, in whatever you're doing, and then think about a life of continuous learning. The more you elaborate, let me come down to a, a simple negative principle. Stereotypy is the enemy. Okay, think about the elaboration of behavior. Think about doing things multiple ways as opposed to doing the same thing over and over again to perfection. What you want to do ultimately is to accomplish everything in multiple ways to perfection. That's healthy for your brain. Believe me. You're, you're definitely the one to believe. Perhaps you'll understand why. <laughs> <laughs> so our last rapid fire question, last question for the show is, if you were a student entering college today, right. what would you choose to study and focus your research on? Would you focus on the same things you focused on in the past or is there anything new that really intrigues you? Well, when I approached these issues as a young man, there was relatively little science that directly related to the science that relates to the highest functions of the brain. And now that's been powerfully enabled by human physiology and human medicine. So I'd probably take a uh, approach that leads me relatively directly into human performance and human physical and functional human brains. They're, because there are powerful and more effective methods now, issues that I attempted to study in rodents and in primates non-human primates can now be all addressed in the human model itself. And you can go much faster across the landscape of logic and science in that model than you can in these animal models. It's an exciting area of study because in a sense, you're studying the basis of yourself and there's tremendous potential medical extensions of it. So I still think it's wide open for an intelligent young man or woman as a life career. And I hope they have as much fun at it as I have had. That's great. Uh, it certainly does seem like you had a lot of fun, and we had a lot of fun talking with you too, Dr. Merzenich. So thank you again for joining the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. 